we have a pathway to get to 60% renewables by 2030. That's, that's about as far as I can look. So I figure by 2030, somebody will figure it out, you know, and that's why I just say after 2030 is fantasy baseball. What do you, you want? You want me to tell you what kind of style of shoes you should be buying now for 2040? Come on, get real. It was the Woodstock of global warming, the World's Fair of reducing emissions. It was the Global Climate Action Summit hosted by California Governor Jerry Brown. So we sat down with an expert on decarbonization in the Golden State. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental politics in America. And I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media. I was joined for this interview by Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, as well as Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. This LA-based team journeyed up the coast last week to join thousands of scientists, business leaders, activists, entertainers, and politicians from more than 100 countries at the three-day Global Climate Action Summit. Combating climate change is a global issue, but the spotlight last week was really on California, which has been forging ahead on fighting climate change and pushing back on the Trump administration. Governor Jerry Brown signed a historic bill into law at the beginning of the week, requiring the state to power its electric grid with 60% renewables by 2030 and 100% carbon-free resources by 2045. But that's not all. Governor Brown kicked off the week with a bang by signing an executive order committing California to complete carbon neutrality by 2045. That means tackling emissions from transportation, industry, and heating, and other energy services that rely on fossil fuels. Transitioning the world's fifth largest economy to 100% clean electricity will be difficult. Transitioning that economy to zero net carbon is, well, kind of hard to imagine. So we caught up with someone who can help us figure out the more pragmatic aspects of these aspirational political decisions. And he certainly has a more tactical point of view. Michael Picker is president of the California Public Utilities Commission, which is responsible for regulating the state's electricity sector, and will be responsible for overseeing the implementation of SB 100, California's 100% clean electricity bill, and many other parts of the state's decarbonization efforts. The CPUC plays an incredibly powerful role in the energy transition, so here is that conversation. Commissioner Picker, thank you so much for coming on Political Climate. Well, thank you. So let's get down to that implementation piece. It took a lot of political muscle to get SB 100 passed. But now that it's signed, that almost, I think, seems like the easy part. And you're tasked with making this a reality. What is the first step in implementing SB 100? Well, there's not a lot of immediate action to take place. And so I'm, I'm, it's not top on our list of things to do. It's not top of your list? It's, to, it's not even in the top five, I got to say. What's in the top five? We are becoming a major vehicle for financing vegetation management. We are developing a whole range of new tools for reducing fire risk related to electric utilities. We are deeply involved in efforts to supply water to a couple of coastal communities who have no access to the Sierra supplies. So probably a couple other things. 
uh, there's not a lot that we are going to do in any quick order on SB 100. We, first and foremost is that SB 350, it signed in 2016, actually has moved us more to a, a carbon reduction goal. We uh, were very successful in terms of building large-scale renewables early on. As a result, we actually are way ahead of our 2020 goal. And most of the utilities are already at 33% uh, uh, two years before the 2020 goal. Most of them have contracts. That means they'll be at 40% sometime between 2020 and 2022, probably at 50% sometime around 2025, 2026. So the the carbon goal would require us to actually get to about 50%, 57% renewables right about the same time that we'd hit the 60%. So I think we're on track. I think the tools are in place. I think we just need to continue to manage the process. There are other issues that we have to deal with that will, will actually make it a little more difficult for us. And some of them are the results of innovation in other parts of the electricity sector. But uh, you know, we're so far ahead of our, our original expectations because everybody thought it would be really hard to get renewables in California that I don't see any immediate need to do anything. So considering everything that's on your plate that you just articulated and then also the progress that's been made with past goals, when you look at the process behind SB 100 and, and getting to where we are today, do you think that is honest aspirational policymaking or do you think that's political grandstanding that might have put something on CPUC's desk that maybe you don't need on your desk right now? Well, I think that, that if, from my perspective as a practitioner, and I'm not going to discount the value of an aspirational goal because all of you are talking about it, but I will say that probably the most important feature in this bill allow, is one which allows us to count uh, large hydro as a non-carbon resource. That's absolutely essential. And just to give you a, a simple way to think of it, if we got to 80% and we had to buy that last 20% of uh, renewables, first we would have to quit using hydro as a as portion of our electricity supply, which doesn't make sense. as <laughs> a non-carbon resource and something that can ramp up and down really quickly to help us with those hot summer peaks or where we can we can shut it off to be able to deal with the over generation of solar between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. It has a lot of value to us, but it also becomes real clear that last 20% of the RPS is going to be expensive. And so if you can count hydro, then you bring the cost down. You create a uh, variable resource that, that matches the characteristics of the rest of the renewable portfolio we'll be building. And, and it allows those of us who are whitewater kayakers to be able to time uh, those big flows and, and catch the big waves. And that's the important stuff. Right. So, well, it just, you know, you learn how to work the system. <laughs> Everybody's going to learn how to dance with the grid. Everybody is going gonna, is gonna to become more attuned to these things because the, the cost of electricity will vary by time of day and time of year. And it's going to be in everybody's interest to start to figure out how to do that. That's a good point. So California is the largest economy to go 100% in the world. And so it will be a model. Wait, Do wait, wait. You, Just remember, 20, 2045, 
Anything after 2030 is fantasy baseball. <laughs> okay, so that's... Man so, after my own heart over here. Do, do we have the right... I'll be retired by then. <laughs> Does California have the right regulatory framework to do this? And what is the ideal regulatory framework in your opinion? Like if you could start from scratch, how would you design it? Well, I think we've made some of the important steps years ago. So first, the electric industry does not own generation. The utilities don't own generation. They haven't since about 1998. So they're really kind of indifferent to what the technology is. Once they started to understand how they were going to deal with the high uh, penetration of renewables in their, in their portfolio, then it got easy for them. And it was well-timed for them to replace those Korean War-era uh, gas plants with clean renewables. And the pricing after we got through the first wave of, uh, of uh, expensive contracts and the renewable developers learned how to work within the California market and quickly were able to bring the price down, has made it incredibly competitive. And it w was also fairly well-timed with the federal, our spending dollars. So all those things together and some real hard work to actually help get projects through the permitting and interconnecting uh, process made it much simpler than people went to. I used to go to big events like the one that we're having here where everybody talked about how it was impossible to get any, any projects built in California. We'd never make 33% by 2020. Well, now the challenge is, is how do we decarbonize the California economy? How do we use this clean electricity to actually begin to electrify transportation? Which means that we now have created strong electric utilities who have an interest in taking market share away from the petroleum industry. So, That's going to set up a huge fight. How is that going to shake out? Because the big oil guys aren't going to go quietly. How do you see that unfolding? Well, it's a, it's a hell of a lot better to have very strong and motivated electric utilities working with you to do that than to try to do that through a bunch of marches in the street. So so do you think because the there's aligned incentives right now, this is going to be an easier battle? To be honest with you, none of it was easy. We just It was easier than people predicted. So I don't predict that any of this is going to be easy. I think it'll be a hard struggle. We'll have to learn things that we've never done before. So here, for example, how do you electrify transportation in California? Where do you start? What's the right kinds of uh, choices to make? And I'll give you some of the examples of the kinds of challenges that we all are reckoning with. First is, is that the electric utilities don't do transportation planning. Neither does the California Public Utilities Commission. We don't know where people live. We don't know where they go to work. We don't know how they get there. So for us to step in to actually do this without actually having transportation planners at, at the table. Second is the whole pattern of land use here in California, and San Francisco is a spectacular example of the failure, is that we're forcing people to drive further and further and further to get to work. It's vehicle mile traveled. That means that building the transportation infrastructure becomes even more of a challenge. I think this requires a, a different kind of a model where as the electricity regulators, the people who work with the utilities to help them frame their investments, then they go out and, and borrow a lot of money because everybody knows they're going to get paid back through rates, that 
as, as we do that, we have to have a closer relationship with local governments so that they understand that they have a responsibility to actually do transportation and land use planning. We have to work with Caltrans, the state transportation agency. That's hard because the regulators usually were designed to stand off from other policy decision making and to focus on rates, reliability, and, uh, and safety. So how do you give up power to another state agency when you've actually been a agency that's been isolated? We're all the way here in San Francisco. We actually built a moat between us and <laughs> Sacramento, which is what Hiram Johnson intended, is that we wouldn't be affected by the politics of other state agencies and other issues. That is the biggest challenge I face. And you guys are right in the middle of it now, right? I mean, you're, you're the ones that are going to implement what I would argue is a, is a political piece of legislation. So can I clarify one thing? Because we started this discussion around... Clarify? In yes. electricity? In this fast-paced industry? Shocking, I know. I want a little more detail here. Because, you know, I'm, I'm the journalist in the room, so you see the headlines, 100% clean electricity. That is still a remarkable thing for a lot of people to grasp. So what you're saying, though, for California, given the history and the setup of this state, it's going to be a challenge, but it sounds like it's not that much of a challenge. What's the takeaway for people hearing this big news? Okay, we, we have a pathway to get to 60% renewables by 2030. That's, that's about as far as I can look. But if you figure that on the average year, we 19% of our electricity supply is hydro, and that now counts towards this non-carbon uh, goal, well, that's 80%. So I figure by 2030, somebody will figure it out, you know, and that's why I just say after 2030 is fantasy baseball. What do you, you want? You want me to tell you what kind of style of shoes you should be buying now for 2040? Come on, get real. <laughs> RPS is a great industrial policy. It causes you to go out and buy technologies that weren't prevalent in the marketplace earlier. It helps to build that cadre of developers who can, who can produce cheap, clean electricity that we can use to decarbonize other sectors in the California economy. That's what I get excited about. SB 100, great. But SB 100 is only addressing current demand in the electricity sector. It's probably likely that to decarbonize transportation and to drive the use of gas out of buildings in, in some industries, we will see higher electric demand in California. That's exciting to me because it's clean and it's going to decarbonize other industries and it's the only way we're going to meet our 2030 goal. What's the right policy to make that happen? What do you think? A carbon goal. A carbon goal and a carbon price. We have a carbon price. It's pretty low. But we have a carbon goal, and we're driving to that. SB 100 is okay. It's probably not harmful, but it's not going to be the driver that gets us to a carbon f clean economy. So that that goes back to the the initial question I asked you, and I'm in 100% agreement with you. By the way, is I, I always you know on and off the record with with them, I always say. Why yell about 100% and just pat yourself on the back frequently? Why not start looking at actual technical changes we can make, investments that can be made, deploying you know, EV charging? I'm a huge fan of electrification, and I say- Shane is turning let's, blue. Let's sit down. Well, no, but let, let's sit down and figure out what we can actually do right now to lead that to a really good place. That does not get people excited, though. You're not going to see- but, you, you said something about March's earlier commissioner that maybe that's not the most effective- I don't uh, want to get people cry, excited. I want to accomplish goals. There's, there's a huge well, difference. I'm did clearly, do, do I'm clearly get, one leads to the other, Shane. Exactly. Did, yeah, did goals get met, though, because there's momentum around them? 
people were excited about the clean power plan and now it's dead somewhere, right? So if you would have, if someone would have taken the time to, to, to pass a law that could have actually been implemented, we'd have made progress, but we didn't. But we all got really excited. Yeah, well, it was I didn't your get excited. fault. But you guys were all excited about it, but it didn't go anywhere. Look, a lot of people's pathways are going to be different from mine. I get excited about decarbonization. I get excited about innovation. I, you know, I think that uh, that the RPS was useful. I don't see that 100 percent is a, is an obstacle to doing the things that we need to do. If if other people are excited about it, great. I, I, I what I because think it is, can be a model. It gives people, you know, California can lead on this. Other states are not going to follow. States that have not or been as progressive. it can be a death knell if it doesn't work out. Right? Well, but by the time the they get... The chairman is going to make sure it works. By the time <laughs> they get to 2030, maybe this will all be so easy that they will be focusing on their carbon goals too. Yeah, we'll have a new Congress next year um, if our people vote uh, and we get uh, Democrats back in control, we might actually be able to do something. Is there anything Washington and Congress can do to help achieve the goals that you're thinking about? I think that if I was going to point to anything that I thought would really be helpful, it's to uh, develop a true jobs program in this country that would help people to feel more secure and less uh, at risk. I think that that will make the conversations with our elected officials uh, and our, our appointed officials much easier. So when I talk to my colleagues at, at, as regulators in other states, they, they tell me that they don't think that coal is ever coming back in the West. They don't, they don't see any prospects for coal mining in, in some of the northern Rocky states. Despite Trump's attempt to bail out these <laughs> coal but, plants. But, but some of them actually run for elected office to be commissioners. Many of them have to, to keep an eye to their, their reappointment to governors who cannot stand for reelection and say that they are going to engage in a, uh, even a partial market that where the best prices are for renewables that will undercut those those jobs. And I, so I think that, that, that we need to, to reduce the, the overall uh, fear that, that, that people who work in those industries have that their life is going away, and it is. You know, when I talk to people there, uh, when I go to meetings in these other states, you see lots of people who are picking up and leaving Montana, leaving Utah, leaving Wyoming because they can't get those kinds of good jobs that allow them to live a middle-class lifestyle. And I worry that, 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 that a lack of real attention to how people can earn a decent living and how they find jobs to give them dignity, allow them to raise their families and to, to see the, a better future, that's getting eroded. And so I don't know that that's a partisan issue. I just think that the politics that we see now is a little poisonous and it's hard for people to sit down and talk about that as, as elected officials. I know some people say there wasn't a, you know, parachute landing for travel agents who got replaced by Expedia. Why are we doing something like that for coal workers? And isn't that a purely political thing to do so? I don't know. I'm not in the travel industry, but as somebody who is uh, is helping to flood Western markets with cheap renewable power, I just feel like you know I have some obligation to think about the impacts of my actions on people's lives. One thing we have not addressed is the Green Book, which talked about community choice aggregation and direct access providers in California, which could, I think, meet something like 80% of load in the state. And in that Green Book, it's defined as potentially an energy crisis. You have de facto deregulation happening in the state. 
We talked a lot about utilities, what they can do, how much they're going to be allowed to spend. Talked about SB 100 and meeting that. You talked about utilities already finding pathways to do so. But are utilities even the main entities we should be talking about right now, given that these other providers are going to be the point of contact for so many customers? There's a variety of ways customers can choose their own electricity provider, and there's a variety of ways that customers can provide their own electricity. And so there's a set of different challenges that come with that. If you have a high uh, uh, procurement goal, but the people who procure are really disaggregated or, uh, or living at the, at the most uh, Jeffersonian level of decision-making, then it gets harder to meet those large central goals. It, how do you then get hundreds of people to understand that they probably are, are undercutting an effective grid that's reliable and clean if they, if they aren't paying attention to these other resources that we need? What happens if the uh, direct access providers, about 13% of all the electric load, all the, con- the consumers in the commercial and industrial sector are served by electricity su- uh, service providers that go back to 2001? And uh, there's a bill in the legislature that would actually bump up the amount of, uh, of electricity that those providers can actually provide. So it's, uh, it's disaggregating in a lot of ways. It would probably be a little easier to do that if there was just, you know, one way that th- all these changes were taking place. But we have five or six different flavors of technologies that individuals can procure that help to meet their electrical needs on an individual basis. And then we have three different flavors of, uh, of choice of provider. And so whatever we do to ensure that we keep the grid reliable, that we make sure that we hit our, our goals, and that we continue to provide a product f- for those people who can't, uh, for one reason or another, take advantage of these other choices. If we don't have a plan, then we could get into trouble. And the thing that worries me the most is if any of these other third-party providers who have maybe as many as a million customers gets caught up in some kind of a fast-paced change in the electricity markets, they may not be able to fare very well having to buy um, expensive electricity. So you, do you think California can meet its decarbonization goals while coping with this dramatic change? I think we need, to, we need to solve that. That's why I listed that as being a little bit higher on my list of priorities. I think that we have to come up with ways that, that we can guarantee that there will be enough reliability available in the system. So, for example, in one of our proceedings, they're actually discussing requiring all these entities to buy a multi-year product rather than year to year so that we know that they have it across several years and creating a central buyer, a central procurement buyer. So this will make you happy as somebody who is, uh, is much more of a Hamiltonian that, that the heavy hand there. of government is going to step in and, and ensure that we have those essential services. I'm not that we sure need. I've ever been accused of that before, but I'll, I'll take it in this particular scenario. I, I could call you Madisonian if that makes you feel better. A bit. It actually does make me feel a little bit better. <laughs> Well, on this sort of bipartisan note, let's turn to our final segment, our Say Something Nice segment, where, of course, we have our Democrat and Republicans say something they found redeeming about the opposing political party. Uh, Brandon, let's have you go first. 
Well, since Shane and I are shacking up together at our Airbnb tonight, I've got two because I want him to be nice to me, you know, not like while I'm sleeping, stick a pin in my ear or something. So (laughs) that's a thing. Good Lord. I don't think I would ever do that. (laughs) Okay. I'll take the compliments anyway. Right. Um, So Senator Dean Heller from Nevada is introducing legislation to extend the electric vehicle tax credit. Um, Right now there's a cap. Once you sell 200,000 electric vehicles, you can no longer um, use that EV tax credit. So he's going to lift that cap. Uh, this would be very good uh, for the EV industry. So, And you'll help him get reelected, right? You, well, you don't want to flip the, that this seat. is the thing. So he, you know, he's in a, in a toss-up race. Uh, so he's motivated, you know, to do this. It will help his reelection chances. My other nice thing is a... To be clear, not sure if that would, that would pass. He's introducing it, but... I don't know if there's any momentum to get it done. With the right muscle behind it, it could pass, and oh. Brandon will help him get reelected. We'll be all right. <laughs> it's a start. It's a start. You know, he's introducing it, so I'm, you know, grateful that he's doing that. It's a good piece of legislation, and having a Republican introduce this is a good thing. So, the other nice thing is there is a, uh, a congressman in 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 Florida who's running, and it's not really a toss-up race. It's 17 points. Uh, Trump won that district by. Uh, in 2016. So, we, you know, the, if the blue wave happens and our people get out and vote, you know, we might be able to take that district. But this guy, Michael Waltz in Florida, is favored to win. And he came out and talked about how climate change is a national security issue. Uh, so in a safe district, a presumably safe Republican district, he's not motivated, uh, you know, to greenwash. Uh, he took a strong stance and said that this is a national security issue that we have to deal with. And so I thought that's uh, I thought that was a good thing for him to do. Well, in this sense of comedy, um, as you guys know, much, uh, much more so than my colleague here, I am. I think that ideology is the enemy of progress on any serious um, legislative issue. And so um, my compliment goes to uh, Henry Cuellar, a congressman from Texas who is participating in a fundraiser. He's a Democratic congressman. He's participating in a fundraiser for Judge John Carter, who's a Republican congressman in the neighboring district. And when asked why he would do such a thing, he said, in the climate that we're in right now, and I'm not quoting verbatim, but pretty close, in the climate that we're in right now, friendship is needed more than partisanship. Um, and he's a good representative. And so I think it's important for all of us. You guys have such a good time at the Airbnb today. It's important <laughs> for all of us to remember that. I mean, kicking the other guy out of office doesn't get any goals met. It just doesn't, right? So making friends, working together, bipartisan solutions, uh, like Brandon and I working together to keep uh, Heller in his seat is going to be fantastic. <laughs> We're going to talk about all our solutions tonight <laughs> for our podcast episode on solutions. That's right. We're going to be brainstorming together. Commissioner Becker, do you have anything you want to add in the spirit of uh, you know camaraderie? Um, well, I, I will, I will, uh, proudly say that I actually got hired by Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, despite my many years of, uh, of work for democratic elected officials to come in and be the straw boss to get a lot of large renewable energy projects built here in the state of California. He was very supportive. He was, uh, despite the fact that I had disagreed with him on many policy issues, I thought he was sincere. And he actually, when I gave him talking points, he actually used them. There you go. Which is always rare, right? Always rare for a principal. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on our podcast today. Commissioner Picker, really appreciate it. Again, this is Political Climate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And check back soon for a new episode. And in the meantime, you can reach us on Twitter at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you want us to discuss in future. Thanks again and until soon. Mm